Father, that's our heart's cry, that you would speak until the entirety of the world is filled with your glory. Oh, that this moment where we in worship underneath the banner of your love, hearing the word of your truth, may this moment accomplish toward that end of the spreading of the glory of the grace of Jesus Christ throughout all of the world. Come now and visit us as we attend to your word. Speak to us through the power of your Holy Spirit and make the words that are on the page live in our hearts that we might be forevermore changed as you speak to us living words of life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Our reading from God's Holy Word this morning begins at the end of Genesis chapter 33, begin in verse 18, and will extend all the way to Genesis 35 verse 1. Before I read this word, I simply want to say, this is not an easy passage to read. It's not because the words within the passage or the language is hard to pronounce. It's that the realities that we will read about are grievous. There may not be a darker passage that we would find anywhere in the Old Testament than Genesis 34. And I recognize that as we read these words together, some of some of the realities of what we will read will touch a number of your lives personally. Has the tendency to resurrect memories that we would rather not revisit. I want to honor that and acknowledge that even before we read it. And ask the Lord as we work our way through this passage to bring to us healing and bring to us His truth and bring to us His grace. That as we look at the difficult realities, the biblical realism that we see in this passage, we would find that he doesn't leave us without recourse, but that he gives us confidence and promises that assure us even in the midst of terrible atrocity. As we focus in upon this passage today, ask the Lord to do exactly the work that he would desire to do in you. And do in all of us as we seek to hear a living word from him. Genesis 33, beginning in verse 18. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Paddan Aran, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamar, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched to tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohi Israel. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah. The daughter of Jacob, he loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard 
that he had defiled his daughter Dinah. But his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it. And the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamer spoke with him, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us, and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us, and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it, and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamer deceitfully, because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do this thing, because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives, and let us give them our daughters." Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us, to become one people, when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of the city listened to Hamer and to his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field. All their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? God said to Jacob, Arise. 
Go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. It's one of those passages when you read it, you think to yourself, don't you? Why is this in the Bible? Why did God choose to include this story in the Bible? What's its purpose? To, to take our minds and our imaginations down the trek that we just trekked down together in reading it. And I can assure you it was about as hard to read as it was to hear. What's the purpose of a passage like this? The scripture teaches us that all Scripture is inspired by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And I believe that you'll find as dark as this passage is, it is profitable for all of the things that Paul said it was when he was writing to Timothy. And behind the layers of darkness and debauchery, there is a light of grace glimmering shimmering and dim as it may first appear. This tension, a tension that all of us feel of how to be close to the world in it without actually being of it. How do we know when we've, we've gone too far and we've become too much like the world? How do we know when we've not gone far enough and we've separated ourselves out too far from the world. I bet you would find in a room uh, this large with as many people in it, there's about as many sensibilities on that question. On what is too far with regards to being close to the world. And what is too far away with regards to an impulse of being separate. Both we're called to in the scriptures. A people, a church, to be a city on a hill that's not hidden, but actually is seen, of which the world sees the good works of God's people and glorifies God and in heaven. If they are to see the good works, they've got to be close enough to see them. There's got to be a relationship where that is the case. And the early church, throughout the book of Acts, constantly showed engagement with those who were needy, who were broken, sharing the good news of the gospel as the Lord added to the number of those who were the redeemed day by day. But even in the midst of that mission being carried out within the precincts of the world, we constantly see the struggle in the life of the church where too much of the world gets into the church. And the distinctiveness of what the church is supposed to be, those good works that are to honor God and glorify Him in heaven, we become to ape the world, mimic the world, and in many ways look like the world, and then subvert the testimony, the witness that we are to bear towards God, towards the watching world. When have we gone too far? When have we not gone far enough? I want to look at this passage around those two questions. 
When have we gone too far? When have we gone too not far enough? Because I think that you see in this passage, there are those many who go too far. And there is one specifically who never seems to go far enough. As we look at it with those questions in view, I think that you'll see yourself on the continuum of that struggle. And it'll help you to consider, how do I live? By what priorities do I live? How much is the mission of Christ the center of the mission of my life? How much is the sharing of the gospel and the engaging with others the center that I live by? Or is there an impulse to fear and separatism that that drives me? Or, Or is there a worldliness that so encompassed me that there's hardly anything different between me and an unbelieving neighbor? Those questions need to be fresh and alive as we work through the text together. As we ask those questions, when have we gone too far? And when have we not gone far enough? God had told Jacob to return to Bethel. When Jacob was leaving Paddan Aran, leaving Laban and all of the great unpleasantness of working for Laban and the history of the 20 years in Paddan Aran, as he left that place and journeyed after meeting Esau, now crossing into the land of Canaan, back in the promised land where his father Isaac dwelt where his grandfather Abraham had dwelt. As he crosses into the land of Canaan, he doesn't go to where it is God had called him to go, to Bethel, to return to the place where God had met him when the stairway of heaven had extended down to earth, when Jacob had laid his head on the rock that night after fleeing from Esau. God had said, come back there. And, and dwell, settle there, build, give your cattle and your flock fields, and, and there raise your, your family. He's about 20 miles from Bethel as we enter into Genesis 34. That's why we started in verses 18 and to 20 of chapter 33 because it shows you that he's bought a piece of property 20 miles from Bethel. He's settling in that land. His cattle and his flock are are feeding and his children are now being raised. He is calling Shechem home. And it's not the home that God had called Jacob to. At the very outset of this passage, what we learn is that Jacob has not gone far enough. The fact is, he's actually gone too far in a different way. He hasn't gone far enough physically and geographically to go to the home that God had planned for him because he's gone too far into worldliness within his own heart. The text gives us those indications when you read the language. Notice verse 18. Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Paddan Aram, and he camped before the city. For those of you who have been with us in the series on Genesis, that might ring a bell. There's a bit of an echo there. An echo tracing all the way back to Genesis 13 to the character Lot. The only other person described as camping before a city was Lot when he moved his tents as far as Sodom. And he settled 
in that place of great wickedness. And then it's not surprising when you begin to think over the story of Lot, what was the greatest struggle he faced in Sodom and Gomorrah, but sexual perversity and violence. What do we see in the pages of Genesis 34? Those very same realities. There's an element of reflection and echo, and there's an element of foreshadowing of the trouble that Jacob would soon face. Did you notice in verse 18 that irony? It's a great one. Verse 13, Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem. That's the last time we'll see the word safe in this passage. For nothing is safe about this city once they settle there. Just as Jacob didn't go far enough, which was a sign of his worldliness and his draw to the city of Shechem, the thing continues when we get to Dinah, his daughter. In the first five verses of Genesis 34, we read of Dinah, this daughter of Leah, whom had been born to Jacob, went out, verse 1, to see the women of the land. Now, with 21st century eyes reading the text, we might think, well, that's fine. She's going to find some nice young ladies in Shechem to spend some time with. She's probably 15, 16 years of age, a young woman at this point. It feels like there's just a mere recounting of, of fact. But, but the reality of the language of the text is pointing us towards a naivety and even a recklessness on Dinah's behalf. Young ladies of marriageable age of which Dinah would have been in the ancient world would never have gone out unchaperoned to a foreign city all alone. It was too dangerous. It was simply too risky. No other example do we find in the scriptures up to this point of a woman venturing alone into the city. It only by a well of which her own father would have owned. There's a concern here that Dinah in the midst of this moment is venturing out to places that are way too far beyond where she should go. It, it raises a question on one of twofold. And the commentators are, of course, perfectly split on the matter. Is it that Jacob and his wife are so uncaring with regards to the looseness of their family to put the appropriate parameters in view to protect her from what is the obvious dangerous perversity and violence in Shechem or, or is it as one or two commentators suggest that Dinah here is well a little bit of a, a chip off the old block that, that maybe she's a lot more like her father than we realize she's sneaking out out from under the knowledge of her, her father and her mother, certainly something that Jacob has been known for, that deceiver, that heel grabber that we've been watching this whole time along. We just don't know. But what we can say is it was foolish. It was foolish. And it opens up vulnerability, exposure, and ultimately a context for the grievous attack. Now as I say those things about Dinah, I want to be very careful. Something in me wants to say, don't be too hard on Dinah. She's a young lady. Yes, it was supremely unwise, but who put her in this place? Who cast his tents close enough to Shechem? 
Jacob? Who was it that didn't go far enough? That leads Dinah to a context where she will go too far in, in terms of what the Lord would have for her in this precarious position to lay the door open for the horror that would happen. The fact is that there's culpability on both sides. It's never that clean, is it? Often when we're in a moment like this, we want to paint one person black and one person white as if one is guilty and one is innocent. We want to see a black hat and a white hat and them ride off into the sunset. We know exactly who is who. The fact is all of us have black and white in all of our hats. And in this context, we have the foolishness of Dinah and we also have the neglect of Jacob. And both contribute to the horrible act of Shechem. Yes, Shechem enters the scene, doesn't he? The villain of Genesis 34, this perpetrator, this young Canaanite prince. He lays his eyes on beautiful Dinah and is immediately overcome with lust. And in his lust, he gives in to his basest instincts and violates Dinah. The force of the verbs are strong. He seized her He lay with her. He humiliated her. Let us be clear. This is an act of sexual violence towards Dinah. These are verbs that were used of the pre-flood people back in Genesis chapter 6 leading up to the devastating flood that wiped out humanity. These are similar verbs that are used in Genesis 18 to describe that horrific event where Lot has the men of the city of Sodom knocking on his door to have the way with the angelic visitors who are with him. This moment is as bad as you can imagine. And friends, it pains me to have to speak of it because I know that in speaking of it, many people in this room, some of you don't have to imagine this moment. Because you've known it. You've known it personally. You know what it's like to have been in a situation like Dinah was placed in. And to even speak of it, I'm aware of even speaking of it, the sensitivity for some in this room is tremendous. And it grieves my heart that that's true for Dinah and it's true for you. But it's why we have to turn our attention to it and not let it stay in the darkness. But to bring it out even in the midst of the worship of God's people. To talk about such horrific things. So that we face them. We deal with them. And we bring them to the Lord. Where else would we take them? As I read this text and reflected so deeply on the many stories over the years that I've both heard and interacted with pastorally. I I know that this is heavy. It makes me want someone different for Dinah than Jacob at this moment. You want to think, well, at least she has a Jacob. At least she has a father who will, who will care for her in this moment of great crime, this moment of great injustice. Look at verse 5, though, how Jacob responds. Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. That's all we hear. What? What? We, 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 you just heard that your daughter had been taken advantage of by a prince of Canaan. And you're like, 
I think I'll hold my peace until my, until my sons come out of the field. What in the world is taking place in this text? This is where you almost see a double crime in the text. Because not only is the perpetrating of the crime taking place, but now you have the one who should be her advocate. The one who should pursue justice and protection on the behalf of Dinah. The one who should know that some level of culpability is his for having been in the place of casting the tents before Shechem. We see him laying back on his laurels waiting for his sons to come in and take control. And boy, do they take control. As we see in this text, Jacob, alongside the story of the two questions, what's too far, what's not far enough? Well, clearly Dinah went too far. Jacob, not far enough. Shechem went abusively too far, grievously too far. And Jacob, in his response, doesn't go near far enough. He doesn't go near far enough. Where's no outrage, no anger, no heartbreak? We don't learn until verse 23 that Dinah is actually being held captive in Shechem's house. It's, it's not as if this was a one-time event. Now she's become a, a prisoner of a kind of war that's a negotiating point in the dialogue. There's no urgency to free her. He's just going to hold his peace and wait till his sons arrive. It's not until Jacob's sons arrive that someone finally gets angry. In verse 7, they hear the news and we're told that they're indignant. They're very angry. And part of you, I hope, as you read the text, go, Finally, someone, in the light of this grievous wickedness. And if you notice, there's something even heartening about their initial response in verse 7. For it's not only that they're angry that Dinah was taken advantage of. Notice the other reason and the way that they state it. Verse 7 says they're angry because also there's this outrageous thing. Literally could be translated disgraceful. Disgraceful thing that has been done in Israel. Notice how they're thinking. They're thinking not merely horizontally with regards to the offense that's been done to their daughter. They're thinking vertically. The offense has been done to God and his people. They even speak of the land as in its future reality. In Israel, where are they? Well, they're in Canaan. But what will Canaan become? Israel's land. They're speaking in promised language. They recognize at least a vertical and horizontal component to the pain of what is taking place. But sadly, even in the hearteningness of verse 7 in their response, these Jacob's sons take it way too far. At the demand of his son Shechem, Hamer comes to Jacob to smooth over the horror tries to broker a deal of marriage between Dinah and his son. And he throws the deal open as if to unite the two peoples. It's, listen here, Jacob, I've got an incredible deal for you. Let's put this unpleasantness behind us. Let, let's let Dinah get married to Shechem. She, she, really, she, really, she really is a perfect match for him. And he's a, he really loves her. He really cares for her. And, and you're thinking as a reader, no, he doesn't. It's, it's, a, it's a twisted tale. If you notice the language, he takes advantage of her. And then in the next 
verse we're told, he loved her and he spoke tenderly to her. What? You don't know whether to read it as manipulation, uh, this sort of rape unto romance sort of picture that's given here. It's very unsettling, very conflicted, very strange. And here as he comes to broker this, he says, listen, it doesn't just have to be between Dinah and Shechem. We can give each other's daughters away to one another. You can intermarry with us. We can intermarry with you. Our land can be your land. Your flocks can feed here. We are in the midst of a, of a trade pathway. You can broker and get wealth. This is a wonderful place. We'll be one big happy family. Now just imagine, if you can remember to get inside Jacob, listening to this. Why did Jacob cast his tents before the city of Shechem? Well, I would argue it's because of a temptation to worldliness. This is that exact temptation. What Hamor is arguing and pleading with Jacob to become is to become a Canaanite. Become one of us. Be, be in our land, marry our women, have your flocks on our land, gain our property, our wealth. We'll be in this together. He's saying to him, lose your distinctive as Israel and become a pagan idol-worshiping Canaanite. We will actually see in the very next chapter, not to steal from coming attractions, but in the next chapter we will see that already the people of Israel, Jacob's family, have foreign idols that Jacob has to get rid of. This is the temptation. How, how far is too far? When is it not far enough? This is... A temptation to go further, to make no distinction between the two. David Wells, professor at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, I believe maybe emeritus, retired now, wrote a series of books on Christ and culture, classics, sort of modern-day classics in the subject in many regards. In the second of those volumes entitled, Losing Our Virtue, he actually defines worldliness with a very helpful line. He says, worldliness is anything that makes sin look normal and righteousness seem strange. Did you catch that? Worldliness is anything that makes sin look normal. Just intermarry with us. Why should we not be one big happy family? And righteousness seems strange. We understand this in the own context in which we live. We could say this about any history, historical moment in, in any cultural setting. But how is it that in our own context in, in North America, we can move from a, a permissive sexual ethic forged throughout the 20th century to a loosening of marriage covenant and rampant divorce to acceptability of homosexual behavior as normal, to being confused over whether gender is a real thing. Worldliness. It doesn't happen overnight, but it happens powerfully, incrementally, methodically over time. 
And as the desensitizing happens, as things that should cause grief cause less grief and become almost normal to becoming actually acceptable, in the movement of that, each and every one of us have that reality, temptation going on inside our hearts, inside our families, inside this church. That battle is being waged. That challenge is here. The temptation to slouch toward Canaan. To slouch towards Canaan. Jacob's sons ultimately are the ones that respond to the proposal of Hamer. Not surprisingly, apparently Jacob, the cat has Jacob's tongue. He hasn't spoken a word. He's still keeping his peace. So his sons come, and we're told in verse 13, they respond deceitfully. What is their deceit? Well, Hamer and Dinah, they said, they said to Hamer and, um, that Dinah could marry Shechem, and their peoples could intermarry if this happened, if the Shechemites will be circumcised. If all of your people will be circumcised, then we can, we can intermarry with one another. Now, on the surface, if we didn't know the story, that would be exactly the right thing to do. In the Old Testament, circumcision was the mark, the distinguishing mark that separated a person out from the world to be a part of the people of God. It functioned in the same way that baptism works in the new covenant with the church. It's the external marker. It's a gateway. It says, I identify with this people. But by saying, if you are circumcised and you agree to circumcise, it means that you're coming into, it's a symbol of inclusion being brought into the people of God. To the covenant promises of God. The embracing of what was promised to Abraham in Genesis 12, 15, and 17. But that's not the point at all. Do you see the darkness is darker still here? What Jacob's sons are doing are taking the very sign that God uses to picture inclusion and promise. And they're using it to set up exclusion and pain of punishment. What do I mean by that? Well, one of the Jewish commentators I read this week very helpfully on the text said, there's a heavy irony that's pictured here. For it's as if they're going to use now the very violent passion towards Dinah and use the part of the body that Shechem used in that violation to itself be rendered painful before they levy ultimate pain. It does seem that something along those lines is happening here. For this ploy for circumcision becomes a means, we're told later, to weaken the males of the Shechemites. As they come in in the moment on the third day when they are sore, the text says, and takes them by surprise and kills all the males. Do you see the spirit of how they're using God's sign as a means to accomplish their wickedness? I told you it was darker than you realized. Donald Gray Barnhouse put it this way. The sign of the covenant was appropriated by the sons of Jacob as a cover and set up for murder. 
The sons of Jacob had taken what God had given as a holy religious sign, and now they were using it for their own wicked ends. As they go into the city and completely wipe out all the males also, what do they do? They take all the women. They take all the children. They take all the wealth. They plunder the entirety of the city. Bruce Waltke, I think, very faithfully as he reads this text says, not only does this text begin with a pillage and a rape, it ends with a pillage and a rape. We recognize that what was done to Dinah is now done in a very real sense to the entirety of the city of Shechem. And we have to remember James' own instruction in this because it's exactly what we see with Jacob's sons, that the anger of man just does not produce the righteousness of God. Now we'll say more about that here in just a moment, but I think it's appropriate to pause for just a moment and talk about this issue of, of justice. It's lying behind the whole of the text. What would be appropriate here? Maybe there's a part of you in here that is so you know, angry about Jacob's silence in the issue with regards to Dinah's humiliation. And maybe there's another group in here that so ex- actually in some ways rears up with some appreciation of the fact that at least the sons of Jacob did something in light of the horrific thing that happened to their sister. Or maybe it just all bothers you like it all bothers me. But I think what you see in this text is actually a pattern. A pattern of great concern that is still true among many Christians today when it comes to issues of justice. Two responses very common in issues of justice today. When we see someone who has done, been done wrong and we desire and seek for them to be treated with equity, with rightness, with righteousness... Two common responses. One, silent indifference. Silent indifference. That's what we see here with Jacob. He has spoken not a word in this text. His sons, he has abdicated. His sons have completely run the show. Silent indifference. Some of us are likely guilty of silent indifference. When it comes to major social grievances, we've had nothing to say, we've had nothing to do, we've sat along the sidelines, we've watched from a place of comfort, we've been unmoved. And others of us have swung to the other extreme. We've done what Jacob's sons did here in Genesis 34, which is nothing short than revengeful violence. Those two responses, very common and easy to slip into. The the safety of self-protection and silent indifference, which we see is actually the motivation of Jacob by the end of this passage. Or the revengeful violence of rising up and righting the wrong, a kind of might makes right attack over the grievance that was done. These two responses, very common in injustice. But the reality is neither one of them actually cut the biblical wisdom. When we begin to read the scripture on the issue of justice, on the issue of righteousness from cover to cover, we see a much more nuanced and wise approach. The Bible, in its its language on justice, the Hebrew word mishpat, essentially means to treat people with equity, treat them right. 
Treat them according to the dignity and honor of being image bearers of God. Treat them with true justice. Giving people their due based upon the facts, regardless of their standing or their gender or their race. Closely akin to the idea of justice is righteousness. In fact, the two words occur all the time in the scriptures together. Justice and righteousness. Specifically in the Old Testament. And the idea of righteousness and justice being brought together in the Old Testament is not merely personal, not merely private. It has to do with being relationally just and wise. In our treatment of one another. In fairness and in generosity. And over and over in the scripture we're called to behave in a manner that's consistent with the justice and the righteousness that God has presented in the word. Two things we should take to heart with regards to the call of justice. First is, it's a present calling that we are to pursue. It's a present calling that we are to pursue. Listen to Micah 6.8. He has told you, O man, what is good and what the Lord does require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. We are to be a people who advocate for the poor, for the marginalized, for those who can't speak for themselves. It should be the burden of believers to stand in the gap as an advocate for those who can't advocate for themselves. In the scriptures, we actually see the very context of this passage spoken to in Deuteronomy 22. Put it in your notes if you're one of those note takers out there. Deuteronomy 22, verses 25 to 27. We see actually the very context of what justice would have looked like in the Old Testament. It's not what the sons did and it's not what Jacob did. Look at what the scripture says. Genesis twenty two twenty five. 25, if in the field a man finds a girl and the man forces her and lies with her, then only the man who lies with her shall die. But you shall do nothing to the girl. There is no sin in the girl worthy of death. For just as a man rises against his neighbor and murders him, so is in this case. You see what the Bible's doing? It's establishing a standard for justice. Uh, the old standard of uh, lex talionis, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. The recognition of, of meeting and righting those wrongs. The picture of that's being given to us even in the Bible. And it tells us it should be something that we pursue, that things be given their equal due. But there's a second thing that the Bible teaches us. And it teaches us that justice is a future that we hope and wait for. That justice is a hope of a future that we wait for. Listen, here's the reality. In this life, justice is not going to be perfectly served. It's not. Over and over, we're going to see inequity. We're going to see issues that are going to arise. There is going to be a time, though, in the future where God promises to bring full and complete justice. And he tells us to leave that at his feet. Listen to Romans 12, 17 through 21. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Listen, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we should know this principle deeply. One, at one level, aren't you so grateful, grateful that justice has not been executed on you. 
Be careful of wanting justice for everyone if you're not willing to receive the full justice that's due for you. We praise God that full justice has not been executed on us, but we do praise God that His justice has been executed righteously on the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, on our behalf. And we plead and we relish and we worship Him today for His mercy. We are a people who long for justice, who love justice, but who see it most beautifully presented in a Savior named the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a reality that we seek. It is a future that we hope for. And you see in this passage, we have to keep hoping. By the end of this passage, Jacob gets mad. He finally says something. And interestingly, when he gets mad, you know what he gets mad about? He gets mad that his sons have caused such a stink, to use the actual words of the text, that now if they get, get mad at him, they're going to come back and his resources are small and he's going to be destroyed. The only thing he's concerned about is himself. Well, just take this in. His daughter has been taken advantage of. His sons have, have committed blasphemy with the sign of circumcision. They have just completely levied a city in injustice. And the only thing he can think about is his own skin. We're going to have to still wait for justice because we're not going to get it right here. But we do get a hint of it at the beginning of chapter 35. God said to Jacob, Arise and go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. Did you notice? God was never mentioned in chapter 34. He was never spoken of. He never spoke. There were no sightings of his promises. There were no followings of his commands. But at the opening of 35, what does he say? Go to Bethel. Now Bethel, a word that means the house of God. Go to the temple. Go to the place where my presence dwells. And when you get there, the only thing that is a saving grace for what has happened in Genesis 34 is I need you to make an altar. Because that altar and that sacrifice represents the recognition of the sin that must be covered for all that has just taken place. And it prefigures the perfect sacrifice who will come, the greater Lamb of God, who will take away the sin of the world, who is the Bethel, the temple of God, who is the picture of sacrifice on the altar, who is the bloodshed that brings to complete justice the sins for all of his people and the one who establishes mercy so that we, by God's grace, don't get the justice we deserve. The glimpse of the gospel in the midst of the gathering darkness of Genesis 34 is that we've got to look through the pages of Scripture to Calvary, to Jesus, the only righteous one who receives the full just punishment for sins. Friends, in the light of our zeal for things to be made right, let us be thankful that Jesus is the one who is in charge of that work. And not us. 
Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. There will come a day soon enough. And I say this with humility and not a little bit of shaking in the knees where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And the Prince Shechem's knees will be on the ground too. We serve King Jesus. Let us in faithfulness serve Him by standing up for those who need someone to stand up for them like He today stands at the right hand of the Father for you. And let us in patient waiting hope for the day when everything will be made right and all will be well. Father in heaven, we would ask that these truths, difficult, heavy, challenging as they are, would be to us like a purifying scalpel of a surgeon's skilled hand. Cutting into the worldliness and the wickedness of our own hearts, rooting out sin, and healing us by bringing to us the balm of grace, changing us into the people you would have us to be. As we commit this time now to you, having heard your word, we prepare to meet you at the table. Come and gladden the hearts of your people, knowing that justice has been served and mercy has been won. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.